2007, October 18th, Lecture 21, Dance of the Planets. Start here. We've been talking all this week about gravity, the effects of gravity, and how we use gravity, Newton's version of gravity, to explain planetary motions. The first two lectures, we talked about what gravity was and applied it to the general case of orbits around the sun <clears throat> and showed that Kepler's three laws of planetary motion could be generalized by Newton to any two bodies orbiting around each other. Yesterday, we talked about another dimension of gravity, namely that objects have a certain physical extent. So there's a difference in gravity from the near side to the far side of one object feeling the gravity of another, and that has this effect of producing a stretch along the body line and a squash in the perpendicular direction, and that tidal distortion is what produces the effect of ocean tides, body tides, and we saw towards the end of the lecture that there's a lot of energy exchange going on as the moon tries to rotate through its own tidal bulge, slowly but surely slowed the moon's rotation until its rate of rotation exactly matched the rate of its orbit around the Earth. And we got what's called tidal locking. We also see how this tidal friction of the Earth, which does in fact turn through its tidal bulge every day, actually causes the oceans to drag out in front a bit because of the friction between the seafloor and the oceans. So the tidal bulge leads the moon a little bit. That extra bit of mass in front of the moon leads to a little bit of a gravitational tug, continuous acceleration on the moon, and that causes the moon to actually begin to spiral outwards. But the energy for that spiraling outwards is coming from that friction between the ocean and the ocean floor, which is acting like a pair of brake pads, slowing the Earth's rotation while it increases the size of the moon's orbit. So what we see is if we look at the Earth-Moon system, the orbital configuration today, it's different than it was a million years, a billion years, or three billion years ago. There is this effect of what we call dynamical evolution. Dynamical systems change in time. Well, over the years as I've taught this course, <coughs> we'll see other signs of dynamical interaction, of dynamical gravitational interactions throughout the solar system. And I was always kind of having to stop in mid-topic and say, okay, now we've got to stop for a second and I've got to describe to you this phenomenon. A couple of years ago, while I was actually sitting in on another fellow professor's class, we, the senior professor's go to the junior professor's classes to give peer reviews on their teaching to help him improve teaching overall. And as I was watching one of the new assistant professors give a lecture very similar to the one that, that we're going to get in a couple days on Mercury, I kept scratching my chin saying, you know, we just interrupted, he just interrupted his lecture to give this little mini lesson on resonances. Why don't we do that in advance? And so over the summer I thought a little bit about maybe we should talk a bit more about gravity writ large in the solar system and use that as a basis to then look at what we're going to see later on as we study the solar system. So that was the origin of today's lecture, Dance of the Planets. And you get to be my guinea pigs. You're the first people to see this lecture. The key ideas today is to start with a basic fact. Every object in the solar system feels a gravitational pull from all the other objects that are present in the solar system. Gravity is a universal force. Everything pulls on everything else. We're all pulling on each other in our own tiny gravitational way, even in this room. And that's true even in the solar system. This is going to lead to an introduction of a so-called three-body problem, where we'll start with the simplest multi-gravitational tug problem, which will lead to the definition of the Lagrange points in one of the special solutions of that. And we'll use as examples the Earth-Moon and the Sun-Jupiter system, which show examples of these three-body proce gravitational processes at work. We're then going to look in more detail at the types of gravitational interactions that can happen between various pairs of bodies throughout the solar system. 
and we're going to divide them into two basic groups, so-called long-range perturbations, of which the most dramatic example of that was the discovery of the planet Neptune by observing the long-range perturbations in the orbit of Neptune, Uranus. And what happens if you get very close encounters? And an example of that is you can actually get something called the slingshot effect, which is not only altering orbits within our own solar system, but in fact is a tool we use for celestial navigation, for sending spacecraft to the outer solar system. And finally, I want to say something about the effect of orbital resonances. Orbital or so-called mean motion resonances refer to when things are orbits are perfectly synchronized together so that some of these gravitational perturbations can actually accumulate and amplify on each other. We're going to see examples, especially as we go out into the solar system, of, so of resonant phenomenon being very important, of being part of the mechanism by which the evolution of the solar system dynamically, the change in the orbital configuration over time has occurred and will begin to will prep you to looking for those phenomena as we begin our exploration of the universe, of the solar system in the next week or so. So today's class is the final chapter on gravity, gravity working of all pulling on everyone else. <clears throat> so we have to get beyond Kepler, and even, not, but not beyond Newton. Newton's reformulation of Kepler's three laws of motion is really only strictly true mathematically if I'm talking about pairs of massive objects that are orbiting about their common center of mass. Once I throw a third or a fourth massive body into that set, I no longer get orbits that are exactly described as conic sections with the center of mass at one focus. I will get deviations from this simple two-body Keplerian motion. Well, it should become immediately obvious that there's problems with Kepler's laws applied to the solar system right away, because as you look at the solar system, the first thing that grabs your eye is there's more than two things in the solar system. The solar system is, in fact, a many-body system. There are eight major planets in the solar system, some of them quite large. Jupiter, the largest planet in the solar system, is 318 times the mass of the Earth. That's got to have an effect. There are multiple moon systems. Saturn, as of, I think, last month or just the month before, they discovered the 60th moon in orbit around Saturn. 60, 60, that's incredible. The rings contain millions or billions of, of ice particles inside of them, each of them feeling the gravitational tug from all the other things in that system. It's not a simple two-body problem. In addition to relatively big bodies, nice big spherical bodies you could think of standing on, there are literally millions of small asteroids and icy bodies spread throughout the entire solar system. The asteroid's in a zone primarily between Mars and Jupiter, the so-called main belt, and then this place called the Kuiper Belt, just beyond the orbit of Neptune. That's got the largest reservoir of icy bodies, including the really big ones like Eris and Pluto and Sedna and these objects. And then there's just... There's just a countless amount, well, not quite countless, we can estimate, of just little tiny bits of debris, rocks, that, meteors, ranging from grains of sand up to the size of a house, to comets, which are gigantic ice balls coming in from the outer solar system. So if I want to deal with the solar system dynamically, even from the time of Newton, Newton himself realized that it's not just going to be this simple, idealized, two-body problem of Kepler, that we really have to deal with the so-called many-body problem. The problem with the many-body problem is it is extremely difficult mathematically. In fact, there are no strictly mathematical solutions to the many-body problem with, except with very, very few special circumstances. 
we actually have to deal with the solutions of the many-body problem, of all tugging upon all numerically. And obviously the rise of com numerical computers in the later part of the 20th century and now into the early 21st century has really revolutionized the study because we can solve the individual tugs and add them together in re almost real time or even faster than real time, certainly. And we can actually begin to predict the behavior of the solar system now out over many billions of years, even using special computers. But let's, getting ahead of ourselves, let's step back and, and, and go back to about just after Newton was able to solve the equations of motion for the two-body problem. People immediately said, but, Ike, solar system's a many-body problem. How do you deal with that? The simplest question you can ask is, let's consider starting with a simple two-body system, like, say, the Earth and the Moon, or maybe Jupiter and, and uh, the Sun, which are the two most massive bodies in the solar system. Set them into orbit around each other and say, to a first approximation, they're in kind of circular Keplerian orbits, or, or near elliptical Keplerian orbits. And then we'll take a third object, and we'll, massive object, and we'll drop it into that two-body system and say, how does that third object move feeling the gravity of the gravitational field of the combined gravity of the two bigger objects? Some examples of that, concrete examples, is, for example, what's the orbit of a spacecraft going to be that's traveling out into the Earth-Moon system where it feels gravity from the Moon and from the Earth combined? How does that affect what the orbit of that spacecraft is going to be? Or I might be considering in the Jupiter-Sun system, there might be an asteroid orbiting around the Sun, but it's near enough to Jupiter that it feels significant gravitational tug from Jupiter. How is its orbit changed by the combination of the Sun's gravity and Jupiter's gravity? Well, the first person to actually come up with a solution to this was Joseph-Louis Lagrange. He was a French mathematician who lived from 1736 to 1813. He was in that generation just following Newton. And these guys were all firm believers in the Newtonian view of the world. Lagrange was a superb mathematician. Some of you who study economics may have run into Lagrange multipliers. Yeah, it's that Lagrange. He was the first person to solve what is known as the restricted three-body problem. He and another guy named Euler worked on this problem a lot. But Lagrange solved the so-called restricted three-body problem. The restricted three-body problem is which, in which that third mass is essentially negligible. It's like the size of a man compared to the size of a planet. You ignore the mass of the third object and just treat it as a semi-massless point. And the second piece of the restriction is you assume that the Earth and Moon are on perfectly circular orbits. Clearly they're not, but you've got to start somewhere, so you might as well make the problem easy on yourself. When he solved this problem, and this is a classic of advanced physics courses, you're made, you're made to basically suffer through this. I, I had to do it in my turn, but I'm not going to make you do it. I'll just tell you the answer. Lagrange found that in the system, there are five islands of, of orbital equilibrium that exist in which the objects in those places actually orbit in lockstep as the Earth and Moon go around each other on circular orbits. These five islands of equilibrium are called the five Lagrange points, and they are named L1 through L5 in Lagrange's honor. Here's a picture of what's going on. This is the Earth-Moon system. The Earth is here, the Moon is here, and there are five Lagrange points, one on the far side of the Moon and one on the near side of the Moon called L1 and L2. Another one on the exact anti-Moon position on the orbit of the Moon here called L3. And then there are two off to the side at 60 degrees, 160 degrees ahead and 160 degrees trailing from the moon called L4 and L5. 
Now, it turns out that L4 and L5 are the only two orbital positions here that are stable. In fact, if I put an object like a spacecraft or a rock in around the L4 point, it actually wouldn't stay at the red dot. It would actually orbit in kind of a little loop in this, in this frame where I'm seeing the Earth and Moon in this position here. So it would orbit around with the, with the Moon. It would basically, one group would be 60 degrees ahead of the Moon, the other group would be 60 degrees behind the Moon, and they'd be kind of whirling around in their little groups as the whole thing went around. Obviously, it's a very complex motion. Now we don't have simple closed curve, but things are doing kind of little loop-de-loops. The reason why they're stable is it's like having a ball bearing or a marble sitting inside of a bowl. If the bowl is curved side up and you put the marble up on one end of the bowl, what does it do? It rattles back and forth stably as it rattles inside that bowl. Gravitationally speaking, the L4 and the L5 points are these little gravitational stable bowls. So I have these little islands of stability. They're little gravitational dimples in the gravitational field where they can stably just kind of rattle around and follow the moon around or trail the moon around, lead or trail, as they go around. And they move around in perfect lockstep. The L3, L1, and L2 points are unstable. By unstable means if I put something like a spacecraft out here at L2 and it gets the slightest little nudge from anything, it goes zipping off out of that orbit. It just kind of wanders away. The way to think about this is, again, think about the marble in the bowl. What happens if I turn the bowl upside down and try to balance the, the marble on the top? If I'm really careful, I can do it. And then I go, and the ball goes off one side. That's what I mean by an unstable equilibrium. It's like balancing a pencil on your hand by the tip. You can do it, but if you just go, it's going to fall over. So how do you keep the pencil in balance? Well, you kind of do a little, well, you do a little, yeah, it's not working. You do a little dance, right? You're always continually moving your hand. So it turns out if I put a spacecraft up, say, in L2 or L1, if I just left it to its, to its own devices just sitting there, it would eventually fall out of that equilibrium. But if I had rocket engines, I could occasionally do a couple of little station-keeping maneuvers, constantly firing in one way or another to kind of hold myself in place. There actually are orbits in these so-called positions, or sometimes called halo orbits, where you can actually set things into a semi-equilibrium until you run out of fuel, at which point you go wandering off into space. Basically, you go back into orbit around the Earth-Moon system. So these L4 and L5 points showed you that, that having throwing a third body into this is really kind of complicated. There's only two places where that third body can orbit stably. Any other position is unstable, and it's easily nudged out. This turns out to have some interesting implications. For example, if I look at the L4 and L5 points, it's a great place to put a spacecraft. Like if I've got, say, for example, the Next Generation Space Telescope, the JW, that was called the James Webb Space Telescope, one of the ideas is to put it, I think, up at the Lagrange L5 point. It always keeps in the same position with respect to the Earth and the Moon, so you can keep antennae pointed at the Earth in exactly the right position for ground stations rolling through. It's a wonderful place to put a spacecraft. There also, if we look very carefully at the L4 and L5 positions on the Earth and Moon system, there's actually some junk there. Okay, there's a number of spacecraft already up there. There's bits of dust, there may be even small bits of rock and meteoritic stuff kind of hanging out there because it becomes a well of stability. But this is kind of a poopy gravitational field compared to other things in the solar system. It gets really nice when you look at the Jupiter-Sun three-body problem. 
and you say, what is happening at the L4 and L5 Lagrange points? Nothing, not squats going on at L1, L2, or L3, because they're unstable. But if we look where the asteroids are, there's a family of asteroids here at L5 and another family at L4. Notice how they don't sit exactly on L4, but they kind of form this long tadpole distribution here. These are, in fact, the so-called Trojan asteroids. The L5, or trailing group, is named for Trojan warriors in, the, in Homer's epic. And the leading L4 positions are named for the Greek warriors. So there's, a, there's for example, a Priam and a, and a Hector over in the L5 group. In the Greeks, there's Agamemnon, there's... there's uh, you, uh, uh, what's his name? God, I can't remember it now. Patroclus, all these guys who were the Greek warriors in, in the epic of the, of the Iliad. So these form stable islands in the solar system that junk, in this case little asteroids, begin to collect. And these orbits all follow Jupiter's orbit around, but they always stay 60 degrees ahead on average or 60 degrees behind. So these Lagrange points are actually important. We actually find things orbiting in the Lagrange points of things like the Earth-Moon system, the Jupiter-Sun system. There have recently been some Neptune-Sun Lagrange point asteroids, um, or actually not really asteroids, but ice balls, discovered in the last few years. So there are some Neptune Trojans as well. So a very common feature of the presence of these stable equilibria is it makes there to be special places in the solar system where stuff can collect, where orbits move around together with others kept in that place by the combined tugs of the sun on these objects. So the sun is pulling on each asteroid and Jupiter's pulling on asteroids and the sum of those two keeps them in these special orbits. Very non-Kaplerian, but very interesting orbits nonetheless. That really sort of brings up a point is then if we go up to four body problems, five body problems, and six body problems, life gets kind of crazy. So we really want to start talking now about what is the orbit going to look like now over time? One of the things these problems show you is once I set something on a path, in the simple Keplerian two-body problem, once I get on that path, it's boring. I walk away, I come back in a billion years, and it's still going around and around like a clock that's just tick, 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 tick around without change. But when I go to a many-body problem, I look at a system and see what its dynamical orbit state is, and I come back in a thousand years or a million years, and hey, where'd the object go? <laughs> The orbits can change dramatically because there are always little small interactions. Gravity is always giving little tugs, little pulls in one way, either pulling against the motion and decelerating or pulling with the motion and accelerating. Generically, we'll call these gravitational interactions. Now, to a first approximation, Kepler isn't bad, right? Most orbits are, to a first approximation, Keplerian with the sun. And the reason for that is because the sun is just plain huge. The sun is a thousand times more massive than everything, all the planets, all the moons, all the debris in the solar system piled up in one ball. It's still a thousand times more massive. So the sun's gravity really dominates to first approximation all orbits of things going around the sun. If I just want to figure out where that object's going to be tomorrow or the next year or 10 years from now, I could, don't do pretty bad just using a simple Keplerian model where I assume that for the purposes of tracing the orbit of Mars, the only two things in the solar system are the Sun and Mars. And I kind of ignore all the little tugs from the other planets. The solar system is also the reason why we can do this today is that the solar system today is a pretty empty place. There's lots and lots of empty space and massive things are very far apart, right? The nearest planets to the Earth 
are 0.4 astronomical units in either direction in round numbers, now 0.2 and 0.4. When we get to the outer solar system, the distance between Jupiter and Saturn is five astronomical units. That's as far as Jupiter is from the sun. Now, some of that's made up for the fact that the planets are much more massive in the outer solar system. But still, big distances between big objects means that I'm not going to have a lot of close encounters. I'm, remember, gravity is a 1 over r squared force, 1 over inverse square law force. So to have a really strong gravitational tug, I've got to get up close and personal if I don't have a lot of mass. And if there's big distances between things, the tugs are all going to be tiny. So I can kind of divide up my gravitational interactions into two basic sets. Gravity from the other bodies is always going to be less than the sun's gravity to a first approximation. But there's two things that can happen. Those little tugs, those little nips and tucks that I get from the various other objects can, in fact, begin to accumulate over long periods of time. So even though at any given instant the gravitational tug on me, if I'm an asteroid in the outer solar system from Jupiter, is small, added up over many thousands of orbits, it can start to build up. It's like putting a penny away every day. Eventually, you have some real money if set aside. Or, if on those rare occasions, I happen to be on or an orbit that allows me to have a very close encounter with one of these massive objects, then all bets suddenly are off. And suddenly, my gravity may be very much dominated by the gravity of the thing I'm approaching and not the sun. So we want to look at these two different cases of little tiny tugs that do their thing over time and then the occasional large close encounters. So let's start with these little tiny tugs. Realistically, what these are is these are tugs that occur at long range. Things don't get especially close to each other. And we call them long range perturbations. The, what we're interested in are the long range interactions between two massive objects that are both kind of minding their own business, going around the sun, and they kind of feel a little tug at long distance from each other. Now what this extra force does, what does Newton's second law tell us? Newton's second law says forces cause massive bodies to accelerate. So if I see an object accelerating over and above its motion, I know that some force is acting. So if I'm going to get a little gravitational tug from Jupiter, what that's going to mean is Jupiter is going to cause my motion to change a little bit. I'm going to accelerate in response to that force. Similarly, I'm here saying, hey, gravity is a mutual force. Jupiter's tugging on me, I'm tugging right back on Jupiter. But the acceleration that Jupiter feels is inversely proportional to its mass. I'm just a whole lot smaller than Jupiter, so even though we feel the identical force, Jupiter says, yeah, whatever, as far as acceleration is concerned, and I go, whoa, I feel a big acceleration. So the per what you're, we're going to do is say, put the body on its first approximation Keplerian orbit, and then you add the gravity from the perturber, the bigger object, and you perturb it, you deviate it from the simple two-body Keplerian orbit that it's in. This gravitational perturbation is obviously going to be strongest when the bodies are closest. When are the bodies closest? When they're at opposition, when they're on the same side of the solar system with each other. So the strongest forces are when you're at the point of closest approach between them, which is opposition as seen from the inside track object. Furthermore, because forces are the same, but acceleration is inversely proportional to your mass, the smaller, less massive objects are going to accelerate more in response to that additional little pertur perturbative tug. These effects are generally going to accumulate over time. Every time you come into opposition with Jupiter, you're going to get a little tug from Jupiter's gravity. Now, in general, 
you're going to get a tug over here at this part of the orbit, and then the next opposition will be over here, and the next opposition over here, and so forth. The way to think about oppositions is look at a dial clock, okay? You've got a minute hand and an hour hand. How often do they line up? Well, they line up at different places around the clock. So sometimes I get a tug at this part of the orbit, sometimes I get a tug kind of at this part of the orbit, and on average, it kind of averages out. And so you expect that on first approximation, it kind of mostly, but not quite, cancels out. So for most bodies, these perturbations don't matter a whole lot. But sometimes they can get pretty big. So here's an example of one of these things. I have two planets in the outer solar system. One is on the inside track. It catches up to and passes this outer planet here. When they're close by, the line between them, I get a force of gravitational acceleration, oops, a force of gravity accelerating the inside planet towards the outer planet. And similarly, there's a counter acceleration on the other side. So let's just pay attention to the inside planet now. When the inside planet approaches the outer planet, it feels its gravitational force getting stronger. Force gets stronger as 1 over distance squared. And it feels a little forward acceleration. Since that forward acceleration is in the direction of orbital motion, it feels itself begin to move a little faster than the Keplerian orbit would say it would have. Sometimes later, it passes the other body by. And now it feels an acceleration against its orbital motion. And so it decelerates a little bit. It's trying to move this way, but it's getting sort of retarded a little bit by the gravity pulling it from behind from the planet which is now trailing, the outer planet which is now trailing it. So to a first approximation, very crudely, what happens is the other planet is perturbed. It's deviated from its simple Keplerian path shown in the white curve, and it dimples up in green. Now remember, gravity is an equal and opposite force, so a similar perturbation is going to occur on the outer planet here, and it too is going to deviate from a common path. There's other subtleties that are involved that we're going to pick up here in a second, but that's the basic idea. So as you watch the inner planet overtake the outer planet, you will see it begin to deviate a bit from its course, as if it's trying to go this way, but it's going, whoa, I feel a pull. Nope, now I'm back on course again. As it gets further away, it sort of returns back to course. It speeds up, but then it slows back down again. So it almost but not quite cancels out. And the reason why it doesn't quite cancel out is a simple picture here showed the outer planet stationary but the outer planet is in fact moving. And the fact that you're catching up with a moving object and passing, you'll actually exchange a little energy. And so the outer planet might move more slowly after the encounter and you move a little faster and your orbits will slightly adjust. Why does this matter? Well, it matters for the following reason. In 1871, William Herschel, who was a, a, a German who had moved into England with the uh, Hanoverian king, George II, and later with George III, he lived in Bath, England. He built a telescope for himself, and he began to scan the sky. And one day, in 1781, while scanning the sky, he came across a star that hadn't been there before. His telescope was good enough to show that the star was not a point but a disk, and it was kind of a funny blue-green color. He, in fact, discovered the seventh planet, Uranus, totally by accident. He was just sweeping the sky looking for cool stuff to look at with his big telescope, and he discovered a brand-new planet that was previously unknown to mankind. Herschel became immediately famous, famous, and in fact, Herschel is justifiably famous. He's one of the, the greatest astronomers of the late 18th, early 19th century. You'll learn more about Herschel a little bit later in the class, and certainly if you take 162. So once the planet was discovered, this is the Newtonian age, people began tracking its motion across the sky and eventually determining what its orbit was, its semi-major axis, its period, and the arrangement of the orbit on the sky. But by the year 1840, 
they noticed that there were discrepancies creeping in between where Uranus actually was on the sky and where Keplerian orbit theory said it was supposed to be. In fact, by the year 1840, the difference between the calculated position and where it actually was was one whole minute of arc. That's huge. That's way bigger. And they said, well, of course, now wait a minute. It's not a simple Keplerian two-body problem. We got Saturn, we got Jupiter out there, which have big masses. We got all these other bodies around. So let's add up all the gravitational tugs from all uh, of all the known planets on Uranus, and see what the deviations are. And sure enough, it predicted deviations from Keplerian, but not big enough to make the deviation that was seen. So people say, well, what does this mean? Well, if it's deviating, it's feeling an acceleration. If it's accelerated. So there's some extra gravitational force giving it a bit of a pull. Where could that force be coming from? Some unseen, unknown, massive planet, an eighth planet, further out. So the extra acceleration after you accounted for all the other known planets was not enough to explain the perturbation. And people realized maybe there was an eighth previously unknown planet out there somewhere beyond the orbit of Saturn and probably beyond the orbit of Uranus. Well. Newton's laws are very exact. You can compute how much a body in a particular place will accelerate in a certain way. It's a bone-crunching calculation, but it could be done. It was done by John uh, Urbain Le Verrier in France and John Couch Adams in England. This is done paper and pencil now, and they predicted. If you look here on the sky, there should be a planet there. Now in England, John Couch Adams just simply couldn't convince anyone that that was really the right thing to do. Le Verrier, who did not have access to a telescope, uh, contacted the Berlin Observatory, which did have a good telescope and a good sky map, so you knew where the stars were, and said, "Why don't you go out and look?" Well, on the very same day that they decided to go look, a man named Josef Gala, who was at the Berlin Observatory, pointed the telescope at the position depicted, predicted by Le Verrier, and 52 arc minutes away, he found the planet Neptune. This was an electrifying discovery. In 1846. Someone using just Newtonian gravitational forces said there must be an eighth planet. Told you where to look. You point the telescope, and bang, there it was. If anyone had any doubts remaining about this mysterious gravity action at a distance stuff, they were completely swept away. It was a very, very big discovery for Newton and Newton's laws. But more importantly, it shows the power of perturbation. Of gravitational perturbations, you actually could see that Uranus was deviating from its predicted course by the gravity of Neptune. Well, that's for long-range encounters. What if things get close? Gravity is an inverse square law force. As you get close, the force gets stronger. As the force gets stronger, the acceleration gets proportionally stronger. If you get really close encounters between objects, you can get very dramatic effects. The accelerations can become so large that you can actually dramatically alter the orbits of one or even both bodies. Obviously, the smaller object feels a bigger acceleration and therefore has the biggest, most dramatic effect. Now, the examples that we see throughout the solar system are comets. Comets can be perturbed into a completely new orbit after a close encounter with, say, Jupiter or Saturn. And we see this in a whole family of comets in weird orbits called the short period comets. We can even use this effect as spacecraft navigation to do a gravity assist from Jupiter to accelerate a spacecraft into the outer solar system. It takes a lot of fuel to get in the outer solar system, more than you could possibly carry on a small spacecraft. So why not use the gravity of Jupiter to slingshot you into the outer solar system? 
Every outer solar system probe we've ever sent to the outer solar system has used a Jupiter gravity assist. We've contrived a close encounter to basically sling the, the, the spacecraft to the outer solar system. And you can even turn it around. You can use the gravity assist not to just accelerate the spacecraft, but decelerate it. It takes a lot of fuel to get to Mercury. Why not just simply buzz past the Earth and Venus in such a way as to slow yourself down and drop you right down into Mercury? And we've done that as well. Here's some examples of how this works. Let's consider a short period comet coming in from the outer solar system. If there was no Jupiter there, the comet would be on a very, ellipt very elliptical or even parabolic orbit, come sling in past the sun and go zipping along out and, and just never come back again for millions of years. But what if when it comes by, Jupiter is nearby, and so this passage has a very close encounter with Jupiter's gravity? Then as the comet comes by Jupiter, it's going to get tugged out of its no-Jupiter orbit towards Jupiter and can actually get broken into a completely new orbit. So now this comet, which would normally circle out for millions of years, only rarely coming back into the inner solar system, gets yanked out of its orbit by Jupiter's gravity and gets pushed into this smaller elliptical orbit. So this post-encounter orbit now is a smaller orbit and it goes round and around and around. Halley's Comet is a good example of that. Halley's Comet should have just been a one-pass comet from the outer solar system, but instead it's locked in a 76-year period that's been tweaked by Jupiter's gravity. So this whole family of objects we'll meet later in the course called short-period comets owe their existence to the gravitational alteration of their orbits by a close encounter with Jupiter. So there's one example where in the solar system we can see evidence that close encounters occur. We can also, Jet Propulsion Laboratory is really good at exploiting this for spacecraft navigation. First, what you do is you send a spacecraft on a hyperbolic trajectory around Jupiter, say. It slings around Jupiter, but when it passes Jupiter, it feels the very strong gravity because of the close encounter yanking it forward in the same direction of its motion. Furthermore, Jupiter itself is moving, and so Jupiter sort of reaches from behind, grabs it, and slings forward. Right? So if I wanted to throw something like, okay, it's time to abuse Marvin, if I just picked up Marvin and gave him a toss, I use my energy for my arm, that's all I get. But if I could combine not only the motion of my arm, but steal some of my forward motion in the process, I can slingshot Marvin into the wall. Sorry, Marvin. Marvin gets very badly abused. He's my third Marvin doll in 10 years. Um, we can do this with spacecraft. I steal a little bit of Jupiter's energy of motion. Jupiter actually moves a little tiny bit slower. But Jupiter's 318 times the mass of the Earth. They couldn't care less. If it accelerated a, a school bus-sized spacecraft fast enough to break free from the gravity of the sun itself. Voyager 1 and 2, Pioneer 10 and 11, Cassini, New Horizons, have all used close encounters with Jupiter to sling them out into the outer solar system. In fact, Voyager 1 and 2 and Pioneer 10 and 11, using Jupiter and Saturn, are moving so fast that they're actually on their way into interstellar space. They're actually moving faster than the escape velocity from the sun. That's how effective gravity assist is. And the great thing? It doesn't cost you an ounce of fuel except for a little bit of maneuvering jet. If I tried to get Cassini out to Saturn, I couldn't put enough fuel on the thing to launch it. But if I send it off the Earth, way out in an elliptical orbit, and then bring it past, and, oh, gee, Jupiter, Venus is there, sling past Venus out and around, sling past Venus again, 
hey, look, there's the Earth, slingshot past the Earth, cruise, there's Jupiter, sling, bang, right to Saturn with no extra expenditure of fuel. I can even play it in reverse. Messenger is being sent to Mercury. It costs a lot of fuel to get down to Mercury from the Earth. And instead, we use multiple Earth and multiple Venus passes, and then Mercury, multiple Mercury passes to slow it down enough that what onboard fuel I have fire the engines, poof, drops right into Mercury orbit. It'll be the first spacecraft ever to orbit Mercury. It takes you time from 2004 to 2011, but hey, we got time, and it doesn't cost us an ounce of fuel. That's great. Now, one final thing. These small perturbations generally cancel out. On average, they don't really add up to a whole lot. But every now and then, you get into orbits which are exactly synchronized with each other so that they always get exactly the same repeated tug at exactly the same place in the orbit over time. That leads to an amplification. The analogy? I got nephews. My nephews like to ride on the swings when they were little. So if I go push a kid on a swing, of course, you want to always time your push so you're pushing with the kid's swing. If you do that, what happens? The swing gets bigger and bigger and bigger and you have the quality swing set experience. If, on the other hand, you're not paying attention and sometimes you push against the kid's motion, sometimes you push with their motion, sometimes you boost, sometimes you retard, and you get a jerky swing motion and your nephew does not like you to push you on the swing. So it pays to get into this kind of exciting resonance, to get into perfect synchronization between your swing, your push of the kid, and the direction of the swing. Gravity works the same way. I get two planets lined up. They get their strongest tug at opposition. Somewhat later, they're far apart, no big tug. Further apart still. But they're doing an exactly two-to-one orbit, and bang, hey, Two orbits later of the inner one, I'm lined back up again, and I get that amplifying swing. If the swing pushes me in a bad way, it can destabilize the orbit of the smaller object and kick it out of that orbit. Or if the motion happens so that you avoid regular close encounters, you actually can superstabilize the orbit and lock the object into that place. These exact whole number coincidences are called resonances. Resonances are named by number. The first number refers to the number of orbits completed by the body that's being tweaked. The second number is the number of orbits completed in the same time by the thing that's doing the tweaking. So, for example, Pluto is in a 2 to 3 resonance with Neptune. means Pluto completes two orbits for every three orbits of Neptune. Hilder asteroid completes three orbits for every two orbits of, of Jupiter. Let's zip through that. Here's a beautiful movie of the Jupiter-Sun system. The green are the Trojans, look at them, they're moving around in lockstep, but look at the red, those are the Hildas, the three to two resonance. They're moving around in a co-rotating triangle with Jupiter. They're feeling the Jupiter's motion and they feel this resonance as it's rolling around. We can even get crazy stuff. Three body resonances called Laplace resonances. Here's Io, Europa, and Ganymede, the inner moons of Jupiter. They're doing a gravitational dance around each other in the world's, the universe, solar system's only Laplace resonance. We're going to see resonances throughout the solar system. Dynamical evolution is not only run by tides, it's also amplified by the effect of resonances and the effect of these gravitational motions. The solar system is not a grand Newtonian clockwork. 
It is actually a very complex system. It has a complex dynamical history. Watch out for dynamical effects as we explore the solar system, because one of the things it's going to let us do is to read some of the history of that three, four and a half billion year old solar system by the dynamical effects that leave their traces on the orbits of moving bodies in the sun. Okay, that's all. I'll see you all tomorrow at the test.